Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abedisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind, add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. I'm greeting you today from Oregon, my home state, which is on fire. Be safe out there, everyone. And it's very, very smoky. So I will apologize in advance for the quality of my voice today. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's polarized, brainwashed, hypnotized, and ever so angry little world. As always, we try to present our content with as much grace and empathy as can be mustered on any given day. We're not always successful, I'll admit that, but we are on a bound to give it a shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, We do love shots. Yes, we do. And Lord knows we need them right now with what's going on in Oregon. In fact, uh, excuse me, while I have one. Thank you. Uh, Our rally cry on this show is awaken, oh my people. Do not follow the path of the sheeple and do not give our God cause to weeple. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, hello. A very warm welcome to you. We started this show to give we the people a voice, and we are dedicated to restoring civil discourse. Now, we don't do politically correct on this show, as we see it as an attempt to erode our intellect and turn rational humans into feeble-minded, cowering little minions, too sensitive, too fearful of discussing anything of value, because they've been brainwashed into thinking they will spontaneously combust if they offend anyone. Martini heads, we do not support the establishment. We do not support the thought police. We do, however, support our police. We'd all love to live in a type of world that doesn't need a police force, but we're eons away from that. So please support your police. All you people going around shooting at the police officers. Okay. We may not do PC on this show, but we are big fans of common decency, common courtesy, and our old friend, common sense. Now, the bulk of this show is dedicated to your questions and your comments. So if you would like the contents of your fabulous minds to be shared on this fabulous show, send your emails to ani at arniavidician.com. Or if you prefer snail mail, send them to Cosmic Ani. P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, like the tennis racket, Oregon 97070, USA. And should your precious nugget of wisdom be chosen, don't forget to let us know how and if you would like to be identified. Because if you don't, we are going to refer to you as omit personal details. So let's get to it. I have hardly any voice. I'm not going to really do much pontificating. I know that's going to make a lot of people out there very happy. So let's just get out to quack questions, answers and comments from you, the people. And let me give the old fishbowl a shake up and let's see what falls out of it. Last week's questions, I think um, on the last show, they had a distinctly religious theme to them. So I wonder what this week will bring. And here is an email from a chap who calls himself Mr. Seabury. Oh, I remember this one. And he asks, Dear Annie, 
I listened to your last Say What show last week. May I ask you to clarify your position on LGBTQ? I think perhaps you did not complete your thought process before moving on to another subject. And I want to be sure I understand your views on this as I value your input. Oh, cheers, mate. You stated there are only two genders, and I agree with you, but some might dispute that. Do you think the current confusion with gender is part of the cabal's plan to brainwash people into accepting every orientation as normal? Oh, do I love these questions? No, I don't love these questions. Thank you, Mr. Seabury. One thing I have learned over the years, it's that no matter how well you try to present your point of view, you have no control over how it's received. Every human has to operate through its ancestral coding and social conditioning and programming. So you do your best, but all bets are off. All I can ask of anyone is that they listen all the way through to the end of my response and do not rush off halfway because something triggered them. Here's my take on this. For as long as it harms no one, how mature adults choose to identify is none of my business. I'm going to treat you as I would anyone else. So I'll attempt to provide the clarification you asked for. Um, LGBTQ. Gosh, that's a lot of initials, isn't it? Look, it's no secret that I'm gay. And it's not a secret because it does not define me. It's just another thread in the fabric of my life experience. And because it does not define me, it does not hinder in any shape or form my ability to live the life I want to live and to thrive. In my experience, since I'm okay with it and it's no big thing, everybody else is okay with it and it's no big thing for them. I've never felt the need to have someone advocate for me or the need to hang out in a center designed specifically for gay people. To me, that's removing yourself from society rather than choosing to integrate into society. And, you know, if needed, if you're going to affect change, you do it from within. I chose to be born a woman with female anatomy, which I'm rather fond of. And I chose that specifically because I wanted to experience as a woman. The fact that I'm attracted to other women, I think, takes nothing away from my womanliness. And my darlings, I assure you, I am all woman. Now, if I came across any bigotry, and I'm sure I must have, clearly it didn't make much of an impact on me because I honestly don't remember. I think if you're self-aware and you have self-respect and you stand in your own truth, the pettiness and the nursery rhyme rantings of others are just not on your radar. I mean, you honestly have to care about someone's opinion, don't you, to be hurt by it. Look, gay men and women and transgender, I mean, you know, we've been around since the year dot. If people don't like it, well, tough titty, baby. There are many things in today's world I don't like, but they're not going to go away anytime soon just because I have an issue with them. So, Mr. Seabury, that's the first two initials taken care of, the L and the G. So what's next? Let's take a look. It's the initial B, and that, I believe, is bisexual. Okay, so you swing both ways. Right, um, what's the big deal? Go ahead, swing your thing. I don't see the need to broadcast it and make it a primary focus. I mean, if you're applying for a job, let's say, and I'm interviewing you, unless I'm hiring you for sex, which will never happen, I'm not interested in your bonking preferences. I'm interested in what you can do for the job that you're applying for. So why do you need support if you're bisexual? I would have thought life would be easier for you in some way because you're not, you know, you're not, you don't have to conform. You don't have to be a wife or a husband. You can flip flop and do what the heck you want. So I don't see the 
I, why do you have your initial on the door? Moving on, what's the next initial? Okay, the next initial, that is transgender. What is transgender? Well, let's have a sip of my cocktail and let's figure that out. All right, that is delicious, by the way. That is a keeper. <clears throat> I should be drinking water, that would be better. So transgender, an umbrella term for people whose gender identity and or gender expression differs from what is typically associated with the sex they were assigned at birth. People under the transgender umbrella may describe themselves using one or more of a variety of terms, including transgender. Many transgender people are prescribed hormones by their doctors to bring their bodies into alignment with their gender identity. Some undergo surgery as well. But not all transgender people can or will take those steps. And a transgender identity is not dependent upon physical appearance or medical procedures. All right, so let's sort this out because it doesn't seem to be such a big deal. Say, for example, then you're born a male with male anatomy, you know, meat and two veg, as we used to say back in the UK. But somewhere along the line, you decide you're more comfortable living as a woman. All right. There could be many reasons for that. From my shaman's perspective, and I might add, I do have clients who identify as transgender. Because, you know, it's difficult just to talk about stuff if you don't have decisive contact with it. So from my shaman's perspective, souls, say a soul has had multiple incarnations as one gender, in this case, a female, and very few as a male. So it's natural that that soul might think it was time to try a male lifetime. But the female thread is too strong. It's too deeply embedded. And being male feels uncomfortable and oftentimes disturbing. And that person feels figuratively and literally uncomfortable in that body. And that happens with some gay people, too. Women who are overly butch or men who are overly effeminate. You see, you've come down as a man, but the female takes over. You know, if you understand spiritual cosmology and you have some compassion and you see the bigger picture, you'll try to make sense of this sort of thing rather than write someone off as deranged with a mental health issue. I don't think being transgender is a mental health issue. I think if you don't deal with it properly, you will have mental health issues in the same way as if you don't process other problems in your life or other issues in your life. So if you are born male with a male physical inventory, you're still a male. If you identify as a female, you live, you dress and act as a female, I have no problem with that. I will interact with you in the exact same way I interact with my female friends. But for as long as your physical inventory is male, your gender is still male. You're choosing to live as a female or vice versa, and I'm genuinely cool with that. And it's not my place to deny you quality of life, nor would I want to. There's no reason to. But your physical inventory defines your true gender. Your willy is not going to shrink because you have decided to wear Prada. And your vagina is not going to turn into a willy because you now shop at Men's Warehouse. As with all things... We can make even seemingly complex issues easier to deal with if we make friends with our decisions. If you're living comfortably in your truth, having made the decision that is right for you and having made friends with that decision, there's no need to scream and shout and insist that everyone accepts the choices you have made. If you accept you and your gender identity preferences do not dominate every single conversation ad nauseum, I see no reason why others would have an issue with it. Because after all, changing your gender expression is supposed to align you with your true nature, isn't it? And make life easier for you, isn't it? Now it's your life. You have a right to be happy in it. You don't have the right to tell others how they should feel about it. It's your life, not theirs. I don't see a problem with it. It's how we deal with these issues that's the problem. 
So that's the tea taken care of. What's the next initial, Mr. Seabury? That's Q, which in this case stands for queer. Well, what the heck is queer? I mean, in my day, it meant gay, homosexual. So what does it mean today? Apparently, it means an adjective used by some people, particularly younger people, whose sexual orientation is not exclusively heterosexual. Typically, for those who identify as queer, the terms lesbian, gay, bisexual are perceived to be too limiting and or fraught with cultural connotations they don't feel apply to them. That's interesting. Um, anyway, carrying on, some people may use queer or more commonly genderqueer to describe their gender identity and or gender expression. Also having no gender. Oh, that's interesting too. So once considered a pejorative term, queer has been reclaimed by some LGBT people to describe themselves. However, it is not a universally accepted term even within the LGBT community. Well, that's not a good explanation, is it? I mean, as far as I see, it means you have no idea what you've got and what to do with it. I mean, do we really have that many gender-confused, clueless people on the planet today? Enough to warrant adding this initial to the ever-growing list of initials of things we are and are not? Uh, look, everyone, let's just take a moment, shall we? I'll have a drink. Hang on, I'm, I'll be right back. Okay, let's all take a moment. Now, this is audio radio. There's no visuals, so don't panic. I want you all to take your knickers off. Just take a moment and take your knickers off and take a look at what you have inside them. I'm waiting. Go ahead. I'm not looking. This is audio, not video. All right. If you have a willy, you are male. If you have a vagina, you are female. Your physical inventory defines your gender. How you feel about that and how you want to live is a different matter. It's not changing your gender. So let's not get hosed up with semantics. And oh wait, apparently there's another initial now and that's another Q. And that stands for questioning. People who are questioning. Why do we need to make that a separate group? Everyone after puberty is questioning. It's not a subsection of society. It's every teenager who started to experience hormonal urges. Dear God, sometimes I think the whole world has lost its mind trying to make something out of nothing. Mr. Seabury, you have opened a can of worms for me. Now, you naughty man. You also asked if I thought gender issues are part of the cabal's plan to brainwash people into accepting every orientation as normal. I'm not saying you are one of this group, but I get asked that a lot from fundamentalist Christian groups. Um, no, <laughs> I don't. But there is a cabal campaign, a campaign to blur the lines between what is decent and what is indecent. Having gender issues is not indecent, and it's nothing new. Pedophilia, on the other hand, well, it's also nothing new, unfortunately, but it's indecent and it's evil and it's hiding in plain sight. There is a cabal campaign to make raping children acceptable, to make pedos, uh, you know, pedophilia an orientation. There has been for eons, and of course I take issue with that, in the same way as I take issue with people, and there are people who think that having sex with animals is pretty darn cool. I also take issue with bells on with some school sex education curriculums. You can't expose young children to sex education. They have to be of a certain age. It confuses them. Children are naturally curious. They're easily led. They're easily abused, and they're easily corrupted. So I advise parents to sit in whenever possible on their children's classes I receive calls from parents asking how they should deal with the insanity passing for education in some of today's school system. This has never happened to me before. Parents were not so concerned before, not concerned enough to call someone like me. I'm not a psychologist. 
I'm not a pediatric psychologist. I'm someone who deals with paranormal and, and anomalies. I'm a spiritual counselor. So something has changed. Well, of course it has. It's the push for new world order and the school thought police programs that actually began in earnest in the 1970s, but only a handful of people paid attention. Everyone's so terribly confused about sex and sexuality today. You know, we've downgraded sex in our world, haven't we? We've made it both mundane and dirty. And intimacy between two people, well, that's a sacred act. Intimacy into me see. Just randomly going around and, I don't know, it's, it's up to you how you want to live your lives. But anyway, look, I'll leave it there for now. I will just say, in conclusion, my brethren and sistren, we wouldn't be having problems with any of these issues if we all prayerfully contemplated the phrase, to thine own self be true. Figure out who you are, make friends with it, live in your truth, and be so aligned with your truth that you never perceive any attack upon it. Thank you, Mr. Seabury, uh, for once again giving me the opportunity to be misunderstood and to ruffle feathers. There's a lot more I can say on that subject. I've had conversations with medical physicists and psychologists, um, but today is not the time. Be cool, people. Pick a side, play it well, and play very well with everyone else. All right. I think that deserves a shot of something. Excuse me. All right. Um, here's another question. Yes. From the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. This is from Caroline, who says, Arnie, that's me. My friend says that being androgynous is the highest form of expression for humans on this realm. What do you think? Well, Caroline, uh, I don't know what exactly your friend means by androgynous. Does he or she um, mean having a high degree of both male and female traits? Or do they mean someone born with two sets of genitals? Because that does happen, apparently. Um, I'm so glad it didn't happen to me. I think the highest expression for humans on any realm has nothing whatsoever to do with what you have in your panties. And this is a realm of polarity, north, south, east, west, male, female, in, out, up, down, sweet, salty. Um, we're all androgynous. Are we going to procreate? Is, are we going to be able to procreate? Uh, what happens to the polarity? You know, they say angels are androgynous and up in the upper ethers, there is no gender. Well, there probably isn't, because if you don't have a physical realm, you don't require that polarity. Something to think about. Anyway, cheers, uh, Caroline, for that question. And let's move on to another question, which hopefully has nothing to do with sexuality. All right, shaking up the fishbowl, shaking up the fishbowl. And here's a question from Arthur, King Arthur, <laughs> who lives in Blackburn in Lancashire in the UK. Jan Shaw's from Lancashire. She's uh, one of the radio hosts on uh, the Cosmic Reality <clears throat> station. I really enjoy her shows. I don't think she's from Blackburn, though. What do I know about Blackburn? I remember from school that Flemish weavers settled in the area in the 14th century and developed the weaving industry. And I think that's all I know about Blackburn, except, of course, the football team Blackburn Rovers. Everyone knows Blackburn Rovers, founded in 1875. All right. Uh, OK, who was this from and what's it about? Shut up, Arnie, and concentrate. Arthur, I have a question about Boris Johnson. Do you, Arthur? <laughs> a lot of people do. He fought to take us out of the European Union. Yes, he did. Then he got all wimpy on us, and now it seems he is back. Is this because he is working with President Trump? My brother and I follow the Q alerts and the Q anon. Are we correct to think he has manned up and is back on track to expose Deep State? My brother says Nigel Farage would be the next prime minister and he'd be brilliant at it. Well, it's always nice to hear from peeps back in the UK. I thank you for listening to this show and I hope you share it because we need more shares. People, if you like this show, please share it. Share it. 
let's get millions, thousands of people just listening to all this and going, what is she talking about? So back to Boris. Boris has used the term deep state on more than one occasion. He's very well aware of how the world works and what's going on. And the EU is part of the New World Order, the EU, which uh, actually is the Third Reich. It's designed to destroy national sovereignty and turn the world into one colorless, homogenized goo of feeble-minded automatons willing to obey every command issued to them by some twat on the television. So, yes, Boris, he did push to get us out. And I wonder, did he really get sick with the macaroni? Or did they try to kill him or frighten him? Because whatever he got, it took the wind out of his sails for a bit. But I agree. It seems he is back and has reattached his dangly bits, and he's now waving them in the faces of the traitorous Tories gumming up the works. Go Boris, man. Give them hell. Is he working with POTUS 45? I suspect he is. Now, I don't follow QAnon, but I do check the Q alerts. Uh, mainstream news is now bashing Q. It wasn't on their radar, but now it's on everybody else's radar. So mainstream is bashing Q as yet another conspiracy theory. It is amazing, isn't it, how the press demonizes anyone who works to expose and dismantle the deep state agenda. I mean, look what they did to Nigel Farage. I mean, I like him. He's a patriot. He sees the big picture. He calls out corruption, left, right, and center, and he gets slammed for it. And the press have colored him, as they have POTUS 45, as some sort of right-wing buffoony goonie. But I've followed him carefully for about 20 years now. He's straightforward, straight-talking, intelligent. He doesn't want to see his country destroyed by new world order. I think he'd make a good prime minister. Um, I think he'd probably make a better home secretary. I'd swap out uh, Patel for him any day. I rue the day I do. I rue the day I do that Britain joined the EU, um, the Third Reich. I rejoiced the day Farage and his company waved the Union Jack and walked out of the European Parliament. I cried tears of joy. I fixed myself a gin and tonic. And I don't really like tonic water, but all my friends do. So I took one for the team in their honour. Um, by the way, Martini Heads, a squeeze of fresh lime helps quite a bit with the flavour of G&Ts. You know, just so you know. Arthur and your brother, keep the faith. All right? Big things are happening behind the scenes. I know we're all sick and tired of hearing that. But, uh, you know, we have no right to tell people to hurry up and get on with stuff. We have to each of us ask ourselves, what did we do to help in the Great Awakening? What did you do, Daddy, during the Great Awakening? Thanks, Arthur. I hope your team does well. All right. Shall we pick another? Yes, let's do it, because that's what this show is all about. And this is a very strong cocktail, which I'm enjoying very, very much. Let's pick another question from the Aquarium of Empty Promises. And this one is from Omit Personal Details, who says, do you think religion will ever go away? And if so, when? Well, will it ever go away? Well, dear Omit, ever is a very long time. I expect it will exist in some form or another throughout eternity. I've had conversations with races more advanced than ours on many occasions, and I've asked every variation of the question, are you guys beyond religion? What do you worship? And the answers go along the lines of, we do not need to be told by any religious organization how to conduct ourselves. We do not see creator or creation as something outside ourselves. Our understanding of worship is not praising and adoration of a deity with rituals, although there are some occasions when such rituals serve a purpose. Um, things like we express our reverence for creator by our daily actions and our service to each other and to our cosmic space family. To say we are beyond religion means we no longer have to search outside ourselves for something we now know to be within ourselves. We believe the divine does not need to be adored. It desires to be acknowledged and aligned with for the betterment of its creations. And that, my darlings, is the crux of the matter, isn't it? 
What purpose does something serve? I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> what purpose does something serve? If you know you're a divine cosmic creation and recognize all manifestations of life as such, regardless of their current level of experiencing, you don't need instructions because you are aligned with cosmic inspiration. You know, the old platitude, God is in everything and everything is in God. Every interaction is a sacred interaction because we know that whomsoever we deal with and for whatever reason is at its core, a manifestation of source energy. Now, does that mean you don't kick a looter or an arsonist in the nuts and hold him at gunpoint until the police arrive? No, go ahead and thwack his sacred nuts and bring him to his sacred senses. The difference is in the vantage point. Now, people, I'm a shaman. I know about this sort of thing. If all you see before you is a piece of shit life form who has come to harm you and your family, you've separated yourself from cosmic energy and from cosmic intelligence. You have. But if you see before you a manifestation of divine energy temporarily experiencing, for whatever reason, as a looter or an arsonist, things will go better for all parties. You still get to kick him in the nuts and hold him at gunpoint until the police arrive. You still get to knock him back down if he tries to get up. But chances are, if you see it from a higher vantage point on some level, unless he's a synthetic drug user, he will stay down. Look, people, to all the people out there who think that being a spiritual being is all about stepping back and letting people commit crimes, your cornbread ain't done in the middle. Seriously. Oh, you broke into my house. You must be in need. Oh, you're taking my candlesticks. Oh, have my dinner service as well. Here, I have money in the safe. Take it all. Yes, because I'm a spiritual being. What a load of crapola is that? Anyway, oh, to the mayors and the governors right now who are encouraging the looting, rioting and arson acts, I think you're going to find out sooner than later what it means to mess with people who value sovereignty because people are awakening. Religion's never going to go away. It's going to morph into all sorts of things. But when we get to the point where we recognize each other as manifestations of divine energy, regardless of the current level of experiencing, Something shifts, and our experience shifts with it. Trust me, darlings, I'm a shaman. I know these things. Okay, I think, oh, we've got plenty of time, sort of. Let's take another question. One more question from the coffin of corrupted thought forms. Let's take a look. <clears throat> and this one is from Olafur. Now, that sounds pretty darn Viking, doesn't it? And Olafur says, how many life forms can planet Earth sustain without depleting? I don't know. Let me have a drink and it'll come to me. Mm. I'm going to keep that recipe. <clears throat> well, Olafur, that depends on what those human life forms eat. And that depends on their level of consciousness. Um, now, that being said, I'm just going to say being a vegetarian or a vegan doesn't automatically make you a higher life form with a higher consciousness, because some of you guys and gals out there are the most opinionated, combative and hateful people I have ever had the misfortune to come across. Not my vegan friends, though. They're quite lovely. No, that's not where I'm going with this. Now, it is true to say that a goodly portion of evolved planets do not consume meat, but that's not true for all of them. And in this planet we do have a meat problem. So let's get back to this planet and not to my opinion of opinionated vegans and vegetarians. This planet wasn't originally designated for mass population. It was designated for smaller communities living in harmony with their local environment. And anyway, here we are, <laughs> seven and a half billion and counting, right? And this planet was a pristine oasis of loveliness before races from all over the universe settled here, mined it, ruined it, and yet here we are. So as our Irish friends would say, let's start from where we are. If we learn to manage our resources properly, eight billion, even three times that would not be a problem. 
but we do not manage our resources properly. We mismanage our resources. And we keep getting pregnant, giving manifestations of source energy opportunities to birth themselves. We rely on manufactured foods, not natural foods, because we mismanage our resources. We build cities where there's no water and bring in water from other cities, depleting their resources. Now, back in the day, say in Roman times, that wasn't a big problem. But the population of the earth at that time did not exceed 400 million. <clears throat> when we do it now, it is a problem because it alters the rhythm of Mother Earth's cycle. Any married man knows to stay away from Mother Earth when she's on her cycle. Now, this is not something we can address in one show because there are many approaches to sustainability. Here's a hint for everyone. Agenda 21 is not one of the good choices. Let's go simple. The simplest change we can make is to reduce our consumption of all types of meat immediately by, say, 70%. We grow cereal crops to feed animals, which we then eat. That is not an efficient way of doing business on a planet with a large population. We need to make meat a side serving for those who eat meat, a side serving, not the main course. And I'm against developing meat substitutes. Most of them are toxic. If you give up meat, give up meat, give up burgers, stop trying to make vegetables and whatever else passes for plant-based materials taste like meat, because then you're never gonna give up meat because on a level of consciousness, people are always searching for the taste of meat. So switch the mindset and the way we farm and produce our foods will change. Another matter I'm marginally obsessive about is producing and preserving as much as our food as possible. So I won't go into detail on that because resources for homesteading, canning, fermenting and all things prepping are plentiful. Um, if we do that, that takes the pressure off central supply and distribution and it liberates the individual from dependence on the state, which is always a good thing. So if every family made an effort to do those two things on some level to the best of their ability, we won't have to fill our bellies with genetically modified foods saturated with pesticides, which in turn contaminate the groundwater and poison communities for miles around. Supply and demand, people, supply and demand. If we reduce the demand for the foods that destroy the planet, there will be no profit in their manufacture and manufacturing will cease. Also, as we work the soil ourselves, even if it's in a four by four patch behind our condo, we reconnect with our planetary body. Now, millions of people doing that makes a big difference. Tens of millions going into hundreds of millions will change the face of our society forever and for the better. My darlings, we have to just look at how we use our resources, everything, even our money, our currency. No one needs a latte every day, especially at four bucks a pop. No one needs a coffee shop on every corner. You can make your own coffee at home for pennies. We are a wasteful society. We allow ourselves to be nickel and dimed into poverty, wasting our money on just disposable things instead of putting it into long-term growth. We can sustain billions if we channel our talents and resources into a mindset that provides natural food security in alignment with Gaia for future generations. Let's take a look around us today and ask ourselves, what we are building for our progeny. Coffee shops, big lot stores, places where we worship our pain. Uh, we call those hospitals. Uh, a cycle of endless revolving debt. We can do better. We can do so much better. Thank you, Oliver, for your question, my Viking friend. I'm assuming you're Icelandic. Um, how, if you're not, I apologize. Uh, how many humans? Can Earth sustain? Depends entirely on how those humans behave. Oh, I think I need a drinky poo. Um, excuse me. Mm. You know, when I play back these radio shows, because I do, because I have to, you know, figure out if I'm acting like an idiot or not, um, there's always like this little thumping sound, and I always wonder where that came from. And I have just this moment realized that it's my cocktail glass hitting my reading glasses. After a whole year of doing these, I've finally figured that one out. 
All right, here's another question from the dehydrated fishbowl of fabulosity. Dear Arnie, I know you are a martini head. Yes, we all know that, darling. But have you studied the history of beer? <laughs> it has an important place in our social evolution. I think it was the first fermented beverage on record, and the first recorded bill of lading was for a shipment of beer. In Tudor times, water was poisonous, so people drank beer instead. The yeoman warders at the Tower of London were given an allowance of eight pints of beer each day in addition to their stipends. There's a factory in Germany where glass blowers are given unlimited pints of beer each working day to combat the heat from the furnace. In Egyptian times, beer was used as an antibiotic and saved thousands of lives. Monks brewed beer, so it makes it holy. It would make me and my mates happy if you would recommend a beer once in a while instead of a cocktail. Have you studied the history of beer? What a sweet letter. <laughs> That's from a chap called Andrew, <clears throat> who I'm guessing is from somewhere in the UK. Well, Andrew, it seems you really like beer. I like beer too. I drink beer, not as much as I used to because it seems to add inches to my hips. But food anthropology, it's an area of interest to me. Uh, you know, food anthropology, we study uh, the role that food plays across different communities. Um, uh, you know, economy, social classes, uh, migration habits, uh, cultural traditions, that sort of thing. Do I know about beer? Yes, I, I think I know a little bit about beer from history. I I think you're right. It is the oldest recorded recipe in the world. And that would have been the ancient Egyptians who first documented it on one of those papyrus scrolls. And I think that was about 5000 BC. But it wasn't beer as we know it. In those days, they would have just fermented what they found. You know, dates, pomegranates, um, whatever herbs were growing locally. Um, probably tasted a bit rough compared to today's beers. And I don't think it was the drink of the common man. I could be wrong, but I think it was the pharaoh who oversaw the brewing of certain beers for religious ceremonies. So, um, but they weren't the first people. The pharaohs were not the first people. The Egyptians were not the first people to brew beer. Because in Mesopotamia, about 10,000 BC, they found bowls by the river with beer-like residue. And what they think happened is people found barley, because that grew around then, and made some sort of grain porridgey thing, put it in a giant clay vessel, filled it with the clean river water, covered it up, left it, came back, say, three weeks later, and got the reeds from the river as straws and drank it, and went, whoa, this is good stuff, mate, and promptly passed out. So they found a lot of these there, and it would have been just a grain porridge. And then there would have been, you know, just wild yeast, I suppose. Um, so I think that was the very first time. It was like a barley brew. And then the Egyptians did it. And then at some point from the Middle East, it must have made its way to the Mediterranean and to Europe, uh, where everybody started to drink it. But it started out, I think, to take popularity in northern Europe because there's a lot of barley there. Um, and if you make it properly, it's quite nutritious. And you are right about it being safer than water in some places. And the reason for that is because I think the water was contaminated heavily with human waste. We had not in the Middle Ages figured out how to dispose of our poo-poo. And you don't want to be drinking water with poo-poo floating in it. It's very bad. So... About the Middle Ages, we found beer, malted barley, you know, fermentable sugar, you know, uh, but it just tasted really different. And what happened, I think, I think it was German monks, that the Germans make fantastic beer, by the way. Oh, my God. Something around the middle of the 12th century, the German monks decided that uh, they, they would use wild hops in the beer. And they liked that flavor. If they didn't overhop it, it was very pleasing to them. And it gave a touch of bitterness. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a bitterness is thirst quenching. 
in the same way as cheap vinegary wine or putting vinegar in water, you know, is very thirst quenching. Uh, and of course, there was another benefit that when you added hops to the um, to the beer, it uh, it preserved it. So that was lovely. So it was tasty and it was a preservative. So you write about the monks as well. Um, what was your name? Sorry, Andrew. Andrew, very strong drink. Andrew, the monks were the preeminent brewers of the Middle Ages and all the monasteries, pretty much all the monasteries had a brewery on site. So all the innovations in brewing, um, you know, the introduction of hops and different uh, ingredients, uh, cold storing, um, you know, which we call lagering to improve the flavor. All of that uh, we owe to the monks. And of course, they prayed into the beer and they drank the beer and prayed even more. And we still have a lot of monasteries that produce beer, especially in Belgium, I think. So there we have it in Northern Europe and Germany and Belgium. And then it came to the British Isles. Uh, and, you know, the Britons started to, to brew sort of pale ales and darker ales and stouts. And of course, the Irish did as well. Um, and beer became such an integral part of British life. Uh, the British Empire, of course, there was a time the sun never set on the British Empire. That time has gone. But they had to ship out beer to all of their soldiers and it wasn't going to survive the journey. So they excessively hopped them and raised the alcohol content um, so that it would arrive there fresh and tasty. And they they call it India Pale Ale because most of the beer went to India and Burma. And I hate India Pale Ale. I hate excessively hopped beers. But I think that by the time it got there, it wasn't so hoppy. So there we are. Um, well, here in America, of course, it would have come with the European colonists, wouldn't it? And there was a journal I had read, one of the pilgrims, that there was two reasons why they actually landed at Plymouth Rock. One of them was because the women insisted they needed to do laundry because the clothes were full of lice and horrible things. And the other one is that they were out of beer and they needed to make more. It was probably near beer just for drinking, not the stuff that got you sozzled. And I think it's on record, it's a matter of permanent record, that the first permanent structure that the European colonists built was actually a brewery. And by 1810, New York and Philadelphia, man, they had, there was 42 breweries, and that's 1810, that's the early days. So we were still drinking on all the old English style ales at that time, because that's what the colonists like. And then we started to get the German immigrants. And they preferred a pilsner, a, a, a clean, crisp beer, not the heavy ales, you see. And so they started to make that and people thought, oh, you know, that's all right. And then more immigrants from that part of the world came in. So the demand for that kind of what I call pilsner or lager, um, you know, skyrocketed. And unfortunately, then there was this thing called prohibition from 1920 to 1933. And prohibition, a terrible time, you weren't allowed to drink alcohol. And so the regional breweries, they had to close down. They, some of them survived by using the malt extracts to make ice creams and sodas. But after 13 years of prohibition, people had forgotten what beer tasted like. The brand loyalty was out the window and people were broke, but people still wanted beer. So that's when we started to see these cheaper, lighter mass-produced beers like Budweiser and Schlitz. Um, and people got used to it because that's all there was. And so they bought a lot of it. And so the manufacture process grew on that. Um, and then, you know, we were into these macro beers for a very long time. And there was this, if I remember rightly, there was this thing called the Tide House Law which is a law that makes it illegal for breweries to sell their beverages on premises. So you couldn't have brew pubs. And that was in effect till 1977, 78, something like that. But when we did away with that, the microbrew industry started in earnest and we started getting different types of beer in. Um, and, you know, I live in Oregon and we take our beer very seriously here. And, you know, I think I got a little off track there. <laughs> Um, I'm sure that's a lot more than you wanted to know about beer, but uh, that's all I know for now. But I can certainly research a lot more for you, should you want. And I will from time to time, I promise. 
but instead of a cocktail, I will do a beer selection for you. So thank you, Andrew. Um, I think that wraps it up for Q, A, and C for Quack. And what an interesting mix of ideas uh, that made their way into the fabulous fishbowl today. All right. Do, 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 do. Let's see if we can squeeze in tarot a go go. A little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck. And using the Robin Wood deck because it's pretty and I like pretty, we continue to explore aces, the seed points of a matter, the first sprout of what it's all about. Aces and new beginnings, fresh potential. And today's card is the Ace of Swords. Let's take a look at this beauty and see what wisdom is stored within it. Hmm, swords. Not very lovey-dovey, are they? They're very mental cards, aren't they? Not emotional. I look at this card, and I'm seeing the power of the intellect. I'm being guided to use that power wisely. It's a sword. It's a blade. A surgeon can heal with a sharp blade, but that blade can also be used to kill. So I examine this card. I see a beautiful long sword, decorated pummel, and the hand guards are shaped as wings. And, and where that hilt meets the metal, there's a cool blue jewel, the jewel of the cool rational mind, representing intellect over emotion. And the blade itself is entwined by a green foliage and white flowers. Green, of course, representing evergreen eternity. And the white flower representing purity and objectivity. The Christ consciousness. The blade is set against a cloudy sky. But it catches a patch of blue. And the sunlight bounces off the blade, shooting beams of light in all directions. If I were to pick up the sword, I would feel incredibly powerful. Great strength and power in my hands at my disposal. Such force. Can I handle it? Such mental energy. If I pick up this sword, I better be sure that the time is right to act. I better be sure that I have prepared well. Do I trust myself to use this powerful object? I think I've suffered in the past, but I've learned resilience now. I've learned to focus, to prioritize. And most of all, I have learned grace and my self-esteem, my sense of worth can never again be challenged. And because I know this, I can wield this sword. And because I know this, I know that I will never have to use this sword to defend myself, for I am now true to mine own self. Logic. Self-discipline. A rational mind. Focus. These are the key words for the Ace of Swords. Through adversity, there will be right action. We shall learn. We shall regroup. We will do the right thing for the right reasons. And we will not make decisions when we are in an unbalanced emotional state of mind. We will be fair and just in our dealings. Straightforward. Direct. We shall not mislead or seek to obscure or to cheat. All is on the table in plain sight for all to see. We shall concentrate our efforts and reach our goals. We will collect the waters from the flood of information and distill from them a clear liquid. This is not the time for pettiness. This is the time for right and honorable and necessary action. If I'm asking about medical matters, surgery or legal affairs in the upright position, it will go well. Now, if we pick this card reversed, are we being a bully? Are we throwing our weight around, I wonder? Because when I reverse this card, 
it seems very petty and hateful. It seems very heavy-handed and threatening. A lack of focus, bad planning, resentment, throwing spanners in the works out of sheer malice, definitely the wrong use of power. Are you being exploited? Or are you the one doing the exploiting? Are you the abuser or are you playing the victim? Either way, you're not in control of your rational mind and need to extricate yourself from the situation. With medical matters, surgery, legal affairs, when it's reversed, there will be challenges, make no mistake, and a less than favorable outcome. Sometimes this card comes up when someone is mentally sick and is using, you know, engaging in self-mutilation. I don't like the feel of this card when it's reversed. I'm going to turn it back up. I'm going to turn it back up and I'm going to hold it with both hands with a very high guard as the warriors of old did, saying to people, I wield this tremendous power. I'm not afraid to use this power. Please don't make me do it. Ace of Swords, it asks us to realize, it asks us to evaluate, am I a peacemaker or am I a warmonger? Ooh, ooh, that was exciting, wasn't it? <laughs> Darlings, we're going to do Plato chips, but we are really running out of time. So I just want to encourage you very quickly to take a look at the life of Franklin. Ben Franklin, leading American dude, writer, printer, political person, philosopher, politician, Freemason, postmaster, scientist, inventor, humorist, civic activist, statesman, diplomat, and a major figure in the American Enlightenment and the history of physics for his discoveries and theories regarding electricity. This man who only had two years of formal education and ended up, you know, just, I think he spent, was it the Boston Latin School or whatever? And then he joined the family business, which was candle and soap making. He was writing wonderful things as a teenager for a weekly newspaper called the English Current, England Current, in the 1720s. He was 16 years old. He wrote under the pseudonym Silence Do Good, pretending to be a fictitious widow who offered homespun musings on everything from fashion and marriage to women's rights and religions. And um, as Mrs. Do Good, he received several marriage proposals from eligible bachelors in Boston. Um, a tremendous guy. In fact, I think I'm going to keep him for the next show. I'm going to keep him for the next show. But Ben Franklin, one of the most colorful characters we have in the USA. Um, I just love him. He was weird and wonderful and brilliant and eccentric and sensible and just nuts all at the same time. So my beautiful darlings, we're getting very close to the top of the hour. And I'm going to have to say, I think that's it for this show. I've all but finished my drink. Hang on. Let me finish it for sure. Mm. Delicious. When I finish my drink, which I now have, that means the end of the show. And I do hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed recording it, because I had a blast. It is my pleasure to connect with you every other Wednesday through the magic of Internet Radio. Thanks also for your questions and comments and for giving me a reason to live. Today's real life cocktail was a starry sonata. One and a half ounces Drambuie, half an ounce of Hudson Bay baby bourbon, half an ounce of Oloroso sherry, two dashes of Angostura bitters, and star anise for dressing. So get all the ingredients into a mixing glass with ice, stir until well chilled, that is stir, not hard shake, and then strained into the little chilled glass of your choice and use the star anise for the decoration. And let me tell you, folks, it's delicious, elegant and refined and totally gender neutral. Now, remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, 
One drink is all you need, and I mean that. I raise this glass to everyone struggling with the fires in my home state of Oregon. Most of these fires were set by arsonists. We have unimpeachable proof of this, and still the establishment insults us by denying it. To which I say a great many things, but for today, I will just say this. Many government officials need to go to prison for a very long time because of this and other things they have done. And on that day, I will prepare a new cocktail, which I will call Brown Behind Bars. I'm Arnie Abedissian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Music